Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to this weekend. Coming up, it's a Western but set in Australia and featuring some very unusual headwear. We're rebels, bandits, warriors. We're the Kelly gang now. And the Prince of Darkness has laughed off health problems with a typically rocking comeback. Plus, the reunion they said would never happen until someone came into view pushing a wheelbarrow full of cash. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify and leave us a review. But first, what could have tempted the stars of Friends out of retirement? The reported cheques of $2.5 million ahead may have helped. But when they get back together for a one-off special on the new streaming platform HBO Max, presumably this, the most memorable catchphrase from the series, will get an encore. Cab's ready. All right, let's go. You're welcome. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you speaking to me or sleeping with someone else? We were on a break. Oh, you know, Ross, why don't you just put that on your answering machine? But will fans really be happy with a reunion? And are reunions a good idea at all? Joining me to discuss that are the Daily Mail's film critic, Brian Viner, the Daily Mail's music critic, Adrian Thrills, and the Daily Mail's TV critic, Claudia Connell. There's been some reunions recently, uh, Brian, that were very hard to resist. Uh, the Irishman, Pesci, De Niro yeah. and Pacino all back together again. Yeah. Did it work? You're talking about Pesci and Scorsese and De Niro. That, that's, that was the reunion in that case. That was the they, super group back they together. Made, they Goodfellas and Casino together and uh, Raging Bull, they were all in. And um, Pesci retired in, in 1999, effectively. He came back and made a few other films, but really he retired to make music. You know, he didn't want to come back and, and, and do a big movie like this until De Niro worked on him and apparently he was asked 40 times to come back and eventually he did. And the result was a, you know, it was a triumph. It was the Irishman and he was, he was fantastic. Of course, he's not coming back as the same character that he played in those any of those other movies, he's, but he's still, you know, he's a mobster, a uh, very different kind of mobster this time than, than he was uh, in Goodfellas, you know, where he was that terrible kind of psychopathic hothead and now he's a more measured guy. But uh, so, yeah, it definitely it didn't worked. Get, it didn't get awarded, though, did it? I mean, it, it didn't come up with any Oscars or, or, no, or he was BAFTAs not, he was or nominated. anything. He wasn't there at the Academy Awards, especially, but he was, he was nominated. So I think it was a triumph. In my view, it was probably the least good of, of those films that I've mentioned, The Irishman. I, mean, I know it was highly acclaimed and, I, you know, I liked it, but I didn't absolutely love it like Goodfellas. But, you know, it's great to see those guys back and they love work, working with Scorsese and De Niro and Pesci are great together. And, yeah, so, it you know, it, it, it worked. And um, movie reunions, we're, we're going to go on and talk about sort of TV and, and music reunions where people are coming back and doing the same thing that they've done years before. That tends not to happen in the movies so much. Um, although we have got Top Gun coming back this year with Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. Tom Cruise is probably um, the oldest ever yeah, serving pilot. pilot. Yeah, yeah, Navy pilot, <laughs> absolutely. But if you can believe in that, if you can suspend your disbelief, then uh, we'll see in July whether he, he pulls it off. Well, let's, ju let's just uh, let's just savour a moment of that of that reunion in The Irishman. Well, if we're going at war with these people, war. Things have gotten out of hand with our friend. You gotta sit down, everybody says so. 
No, I'm not sitting down. I can't do it. It's what it is. What it is. I know things. They don't know I know. I guess, Adrian, in, in, in music, getting the band back together uh, is easier. Who have you really enjoyed seeing getting back together? Well, I think, I think with, with band reunions, obviously it's it's potential payday for the uh, the members and it's a chance for, for the fans in a way to relive their, their halcyon days. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is about memories and nostalgia. I think they're mixed. I mean, some of them, I think the Led Zeppelin one, two or three years, oh, maybe 10 years ago now, was was brilliant in that it, it was a one-off show. It was a chance for them. It was a charity gig, and it was a chance for them, in a way, to just to go out on a real high. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying the stairway to heaven. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed. With a word she can get much I think they'd had a couple of slightly messy attempts before in the 80s, and this one at the O2 Arena, it was they, they played really well, and there was a sense of, of of purpose and you know brilliant music musically as well. Um, I went to see Fleetwood Mac last summer, and that was less satisfying in that Lindsay Buckingham, who is been the musical driving force of the band and also part of the unique internal chemistry of that band wasn't present and it, it really showed much as his uh, Mike Campbell and Neil Finn came in took two people to fulfill his role and they did a very competent job but some of that that chemistry and magic was was missing chemistry and magic of course that, that'd be interesting to see there's a lot of talk about Oasis getting back together Uh, now, uh, will the chemistry be rekindled, or uh, uh, Liam and Noel yeah. in such antipathy that it will just be a big fight? Yeah, the heathen chemistry, as you might say. But um, I don't know. I mean, they're a band who split up, or at least the spark of their split was a plum thrown by Liam at Noel that um, splattered on the dressing room wall. I think that was the final straw, the final plum. I, I think the animosity between the two of them is, is genuine. I don't think that's something that's that's there. You don't think that's of, just hyping up the cost no, of I don't. the price? But at the same time, I, I sense that at some point, when the right offer comes along, that reunion is almost inevitable. Claudia, who do you want to see back on stage, uh, either on television or, or in the music business? What would you like to see back? Well, I'm surprised that ABBA have never been tempted. By, by, they must have had huge money offers over the years. Um, I, actually, I don't think I would want to see them now because I think they're maybe a little bit past it. I don't think I'd want to see them in their spandex <laughs> outfits doing sort of Waterloo. Has there ever been a thought of an ABBA uh, reunion, uh, Adrian? Um, well, they've got together. They got together for a friend's party and played maybe one song, oh. so sort of 15 years ago or so, and they've appeared together on stage at at ceremonies and awards, but they've made it very clear that there's no interest. There was talk last year of some kind of reunion, but I, I sense it was probably one of those dreaded hologram tours where you don't actually see the uh, the original members, you see a kind of holographic representation. But, um, I, I mean, I, it would be great to see, but I, I sadly don't but, think but, it is going to happen. But as Claudia said, we are looking to revive our youth when we go back to these places. And, mm. and does it work if the if there's a bunch of old crusties up on stage with their, with their grey ponytails? Does it work? 
Well, I think if they're doing it for the right reasons, you can usually tell whether or not they're they're kind of genuinely enjoying the moment or not. Um, I mean, one of the most famous ones, of course, was the Eagles. They split up very um, acrimoniously in um, 1980 um, amid veiled threats on stage between two members. I think uh, uh, Glenn Fry said to Don Felder, only three more songs before I knock your block off backstage. And... um, and then Don Henley famously said, um, said, you know, that's it, the Eagles, they'll only get together when hell freezes over. And, of course, 14 years later, we had the Hell Freezes Over tour. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> old age love story. Uh, and, Adrian, as a final thought, am I right in saying the Pussycat Dolls are coming back this uh, yeah, summer? Yeah, Nicole Scherzinger and her crew, they're, uh, they're touring in April. One of, like, two or three, there's, there's no... There isn't a real blockbuster reunion this year. There's a couple of big rock ones, My Chemical Come Romance. On, JLS. Oh, well, OK. <laughs> not going to get any JLS, but... Uh, Are you going to yeah. get out your JLS memorabilia, the scarves? Oh, yeah. Claudio yeah. at the front. Yeah, when we're, you know, we're waiting for Oasis or... And probably waiting in vain for the likes of the Smiths and the Jam. Smiths will never happen. I don't think the Smiths will Jam. happen. I doubt it. I think Paul Weller... His bless him. He's always he's operated something of a scorched earth policy towards his past, and I think think at 62 he's unlikely to to, to go back. Oh, um, I could see you in the pencil thin tie, Adrian. I'd be there. there. I'd be there if it, if it uh, if it came to pass. Uh, the one I'd really like to see would be Talking Heads. I think if they were to right, David. But if you're listening, and there's Tina. a man who wants yeah. to see you. <laughs> You'll recognise Emma Kennedy from her screen roles in comedies such as Goodness Gracious Me and Miranda, but she's also a best-selling author of both children's books and adult fiction, not to mention writing for TV's Danger Mouse. Plus, she holds a Guinness World Record for setting up the world's largest ever kazoo orchestra. Oh, and she's also won Celebrity Masterchef and Mastermind. And she's got her new book out, debut fiction novel, The Things We Left Unsaid. But, Emma, what I want to talk to you about is The Tent, The Bucket and Me, uh, which is one of the funniest books ever written, isn't it? Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Do you know, it, it's amazing. I, I, I mean, I can't even remember how long ago it was that I, I wrote that book. And, and still, not a week goes by without someone either sending me an email or sending me a text or sending, you know, a, a tweet or something. It's it's quite extraordinary. It was remarkable. It, it, basically, it's about your family's disastrous attempts to go camping in the 1970s. Yes. And I think everyone yes. did that, didn't they? I mean, it hit a nerve. With the, You're telling my story, Emma, basically. <laughs> well, this is the thing, because I, I was way back in the midst of time, I was approached by a a, a publisher and they, they wanted to because um, I used to do a blog and they wanted to turn my blog in, into a book and I said no you, you, you can't because sadly that, that's already been done and they sort of sent me away and, and said well if you can think of an idea for a book then come back and it so happened that that weekend I, I went to have lunch with my mum and dad and we just started remembering all the disastrous holidays we had when I was younger and we were just crying with laughter and um, and I thought actually do you know what this could be the, the book that I can offer up and I wrote it not thinking for a single 
second that anyone really would be that interested in other people's holidays. But my goodness, how how wrong was I? And now listen, but, you, you know, said you're right. It just sort of hit 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 a nerve. You said your mum and dad were in at the start. Uh, how did they feel yeah. about when it came out? Because I'll tell you this: uh, since I've had uh, a family of my own, I've been completely yeah. paranoid about my behaviour <laughs> on holiday, thinking, "Oh my word, I'm going to yeah. end up as a character in the tent, the bucket, and yeah. me." Well, I'll tell you I'll tell you what they thought about it. I found out that they used to go and stand in bookshops next to it and wait for someone to pick it up and then go, Oh, hello, we're Brenda and Tony from the Tent the Bucket and Me. Would you like us to sign it? I mean honestly, That's not true. I'm not having that ever. That Seriously. Is true. That is true. Yes. My my mother my mother, God rest her. My mother went through an entire phase of literally just introducing herself as I'm Brenda from the Tent the Bucket to Me, as if that was her surname. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you went camping in France in the book, yes. your dad only yes. took spam and corned beef. So yes. where did you get the idea that you could be a cook, celebrity MasterChef winner? How did you manage that? Do you know, well, well, this is the weird thing about my dad, because he was actually a really brilliant cook. Because my mother, my mother refused to do any cooking because she'd read The Female Eunuch. I mean, she literally downed tools the minute she read that book in 1971 <laughs> and never did another thing again because she thought that's what Jermaine Greer wanted. And um, so my dad became this really brilliant cook and he used to be brilliant at pastries. He used to do creme brulees. He was a really advanced cook. And for some reason, and I think this was just on, on because he totally believed somebody at, at, at work who had told him that, that you can't eat French food. I mean, please, <laughs> you can't eat French food. <laughs> and he believed he believed him. And that's why we had the tins of, of spam and silver skin onions and corned beef. And that was pretty much it for a fortnight. Ooh, it, was the, it was the single it was the single most depressing holiday I think I've ever I, I will never forget slumped into a into a camp chair, sullenly staring towards the, the other families who were on the French campsite who were cooking steaks and trout <laughs> and having this wonderful all these wonderful wafting smells that were coming in our direction. And what did we have? We did, all I had was the, the sound of my dad with yet another tin opener going crank, 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 <laughs> crank. Oh, look, here's some corned beef. Now, tell me about the things we left unsaid. This is your yes. uh, debut novel. You sound far too young. It's set in the 1960s. This is great it research, is. surely not, not, uh, not yeah, experience. Yeah. Yes, I did loads and loads and loads of research. I, I, I'm sort of fascinated uh, with Soho um, in the early 50s and 60s. So I read loads of books about it. And it, it's one of those sort of lost eras. It, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I still go to into Soho, but it hasn't got the... I don't know, it hasn't got the vivacity that it once had and it hasn't got that edge and and it really was a place where anybody who is anybody and and especially if you weren't quite somebody would go to and live and and breathe and love and do all of these things and and i it, it, we don't really have that anymore i don't think it felt like a place that that was of of its time, um, and so I wanted to set uh, part of the book 
um, in that environment. Uh, now, the tent, the bucket and me and uh, I left my tents in San Francisco, the hilarious follow-up to that, have a lot of yes. you in it. Obviously, it's, it's your yes. story. Is there any yes. uh, Emma Kennedy in your fiction? Is it you, basically, is the hero and, and involved? Uh, well, the, it, it, there is in Wilma Tenderfoot. I am basically Wilma Tenderfoot, although obviously I'm not an orphan. But but that I, I always wanted to be a uh, a small detective with a beagle. That's true of the, of of those books. But um, in terms of the things we left unsaid, there's there's an element of it. So I lost my mum five years ago. And although this isn't explored in the book, the sort, of, the sort of the idea of it is, is thing that we had unsaid in our family was that my mother um, suffered from a mental illness and it was at a time when it just wasn't discussed. And I really wish, uh, in retrospect, that she had lived long enough to sort of come through the, 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 this, this, this new age of it's all right to A, admit that you've got a mental illness and B, to talk about it and C, to get treatment for it. Because I think I think that one of the great sadnesses of people of my mother's generation is that there will still be people who are suffering with mental illness who won't go and get help for it because there was such a stigma attached to it. So that was my personal experience, but I sort of wanted to uh, take the essence of that and put it into a uh, into a novel about a not not a difficult mother daughter relationship, but one that had complications. Let's put it that way. And is it a thriller? Is it a romance? How would you it's, define it? It's, a mother, it's about a mother daughter relationship, but it and, and you start off thinking that it's a, it the, the book is about the daughter, but it isn't. It's about the mother, and it's about the, the mother's coming of age story and how she became the person that she was. And it's about love. It's about the things that you do for love that will that feel quite shocking and and quite daring and dangerous um, but are necessary in order to maintain something. I can't say more than that otherwise I should be giving things okay. away. And, and, and Emma, as a, as a final thought, will this, as The Tent, The Bucket and Me did, put me in danger of snorting embarrassingly with laughter on oh, the tube? No, no, no. no. This, 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 one, this one will have you reaching for your tissues. Ah. Oh. Yes. Ah, so yes. that is a new departure for you, then. It is. It's it's a much more sort of grown-up um, uh, emotional story. But I've just finished writing a book which you will find funny. Good. So Good. don't worry, there's Good. one on its, on its way. Excellent, yeah. excellent. And a, a final thought, uh, Emma, uh, do you still go camping? Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> Are you at Absolutely mad. No, I, if someone would have to pay me one million pounds to get back in a tent, not a penny less. Oh dear. Well, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics take aim at the latest entertainment releases and sort the wheat from the chaff. First up, the Daily Mail's film critic, uh, Brian Viner. Brian, what's, what have you been watching this week? Well, I've seen a film called True History of the Kelly Gang, which is based on the Peter Carey novel that won the Booker Prize um, almost 20 Brilliant years ago book. now. Brilliant yeah, book. terrific book, yeah. And it's the story of Ned Kelly, who was a, an Australian outlaw in the 19th century, who was hanged. Um, 
aged only about 25, but in those 25 years, he managed to create a, a, a myth, a legend that endures. And even now, he's probably the most Austra uh, famous Australian uh, of all time, even, you know, more than Don Braddon, more than Dame Edna Everidge, you know. He's iconic in Australia. We, of we don't know as much about him here, but to them, he's their Robin Hood figure, really. And the film tells his story. So he was he was the son of Irish immigrants. His father died fairly fairly young, and his mother, this very very powerful figure, Ellen, um, sort of controlled him, and she was uh, she eventually sold him to a what they call a bush ranger in Australia. It sounds rather kind of wholesome, like a like a park ranger or or, a, or even a power ranger. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but bush ranger is not a good thing to be. Is uh, he was a sort of a highwayman and a horse thief and a, a killer. So she sold him to this guy played in the movie by Russell Crowe. Um, I think we might have a clip. I am called the coldest murderer on record. But others, knowing the truth, would call me a hero. Am, am I right in thinking that this is not the first time it's been filmed. It wasn't Mick Jagger in. Uh, yeah, it's Ned been. Kelly. It has, this is the tenth time it's really? been made into a film. Yeah, yeah. Famously, Mick Jagger played Ned Kelly in 1970, and it was a it was a disaster. Mick won't talk about it to this day. Apparently, Heath Ledger played him in 2003. Very interestingly, it was the very first feature-length movie in 1906 was the story of Ned Kelly. So who plays so him this time? To, if Russell Crowe's his uh, kind I, of mentor... I thought you were going to ask me who played him in 1906. <laughs> I would have... <laughs> I would You'd have struggled. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Yeah, so George Mackay plays him. Now, George Mackay uh, has come to real prominence by his performance in 1917, the recent Sam Mendes picture, where he was a First World War soldier. He's, he's absolutely brilliant in this film at, Everybody is really, you know. Russell Crowe's terrific. Charlie Hunnam plays a, a, a policeman, and Nicholas Holt plays a policeman as well, who who is a sort of with whom Ned Kelly has this very sort of love-hate relationship, uh, more hate than love, it has to be said. And the film is sort of episodic, and it goes. You know, from his childhood, he's played by a different actor, young child actor who's very, very good, uh, and then in adulthood by by George Mackay, uh, and it goes from it, it sort of lurches from episode to episode. Some incredible scenes, and it all ends up with this kind of standoff. A bit like it's like the Australian version of the Siege of the Alamo. That's what it was. It was called. Uh, it happened at a place called Glen Rowan in Victoria in I think 1880, and it was famous because um, and it's been depicted in all kinds of Australian images and paintings and what have you, uh, because the, the outlaws, Ned Kelly and his gang, they turned farming equipment into kind of armour, body armour. Uh, they looked very peculiar, um, but it was very effective, so much so that Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the famous author, was incredibly impressed by this when word reached the Britain uh, and said that, you know, we should get our infantry all kind of tooled up in wearing this bizarre kind of farming equipment armour. So, um, and does this film do justice to yeah, them? Yeah, I mean, it does. But my, my problem with the film, I mean, it's quite a strange film. It's directed by a guy called Justin Kurtzel, um, significantly is Australian. And, of course, it's right that an Australian should make a film about Ned Kelly. Tony Richardson made the one in 1970 with Mick Jagger, and it was wrong on so many levels. But the problem here is that we, in this country, are so unfamiliar with the story, whereas to an Australian audience, um, you know, they know they know every little kind of element of it. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's going to play quite as well here. And it is a strange film, but there are some startling scenes 
it, the cinematography is amazing. It makes the most of the Australian kind of colours and the skies and all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, you're going to ask me if it was a hit or a miss, and I would say with slight reservations, uh, I will call it a hit. <laughs> Uh, and from Ned Kelly, who is very visible, uh, what's your second uh, <laughs> Yes, I was going to say, I've, I've seen The Invisible Man, which is which is more than Elizabeth Moss does for most <laughs> of the movie. This is a, not exactly, not a remake, not a, a sort of reboot, if you like, of the 1933 film Claude Rains that, that sparked off a whole series of films, which in turn were adapted from the H.G. Wells novel. The Invisible Man, um, but it's it's very sort of twenty first century. So Elizabeth Moss plays this character called Cecilia, and she is married to a tech, uh, incredibly successful tech entrepreneur. Uh, but at the start of the film, we see her leaving him in the middle of the night. She's drugged him and she's leaving him. He lives in this incredible house uh, overlooking the ocean in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and she kind of sneaks out in the middle of the night. It's very tense. And then she escapes him and we find out that he's, you know, he's abusive and he's controlling and she's trying to get away from him. She's terrified um, that he's going to find her. Uh, she holds up with her sister's friend. Um, and so what develops is a, is a sort of psychological thriller come horror film. It's, it's, it's very well done. Let's listen to a clip. He has figured out a way to be invisible. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not dead. I just can't see him. Okay. Now, I agree with you. Adrian was brilliant, but it wasn't because of anything he invented. It was how he got in people's heads. You think about it. He came up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. Only thing more brilliant than inventing something that makes you invisible is not inventing it, but making you think he did. He's not dead, Tom. I'm quite spooked just listening yeah, to that. Yeah, so, so we hear there that they're talking about Adrian, who's her, her ex-partner, uh, in the past tense because he has apparently committed suicide um, but she's still really spooked by him and she still begins to feel that he's somehow stalking her uh, and he has tracked her down to this house where she's taken refuge she begins not to believe in his suicide and at that point the film is is a real psychological thriller you think well is he just in her head or is he somehow really there you're just not sure and the character we heard talking to her there is is his brother tom who's uh who, who's handling his will and she gets quite a lot of money out of his will um and so this kind of builds and builds and builds it's very tense there are some incredible in fact i don't often sort of articulate my fear in a film but I, I was sitting there in the screening just the other day and I kind of went, oh my lord you know like that it was slightly embarrassing surrounded by other film critics because you're not supposed to do that really you're supposed to be very kind of cool but I really did jump out of my seat at one point I won't uh, elaborate too much on that so it, it's very good it slightly loses its way in the last sort of 15-20 minutes I can't say too much about that for fear of spoilers but it, it just you know you begin not to really quite believe in it as you have up until that point but it's it's very well done i think elizabeth moss is a is a really wonderful actress uh she's very good at playing that sort of hunted haunted character she does that uh, extremely in the well Tale, we saw yeah, her. yeah absolutely and she was and and we first got to know her in mad men on television where she was that very sort of mousy secretary who eventually became much more uh, powerful in the company, and um, but when she was when she played mousy and kind of scared and nervous and overwhelmed, she was 
you know i think i think that's where she really thrives in in parts and that's what she she does very well in this so, film so we've been talking reunions uh, yeah. this is a kind of the cinematic version of that a remake do they do it as well as before? Is it a hit or a miss? Yeah. Oh, I, it's um, it's very different from before because it has to be you know really updated with mo- kind of modern technology and all that. Um, but I, I really liked it. Yeah. It's it's for me. It's definitely a hit. Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic. Adrian, we've been talking reunions, but you seem to have gone back, well back into the 70s well, it's, it's this week. Well, a couple of rock legends this week have been on my listening palette, the uh, first of which is Ozzy Osbourne. He's got a new album called Ordinary Man. It shows a different side to Ozzy, really. It's a kind of much more reflective... Um, I mean, he's sung ballads before. He did a great ballad with Lita Ford in the 80s, and I think he did a duet with Kim Bassinger quite famously. Um, but this is... It, it shows a kind of softer, more reflective side to uh, to one of Rock's great hellraisers. I think we're going to have a listen to it. That is still the absolutely unmistakable voice of Ozzy Osbourne. He's got it? a very distinctive tone, hasn't he? I don't think he's got... He's never had a great vocal range, but he's got this, this kind of depth, and he's still got a bit of a Midlands burr to his voice, and it's a voice that carries a lot of a lot of personality, isn't it? And um, I think he's, he's surrounded himself with a very decent studio band. He's got Chad Smith of the Chili Peppers drumming, and he's got... Uh, who is uh, Duff McKagan from uh, Guns N' Roses again on bass, and it, it's a very solid album. Does you know, it work? I mean, are you are you are you going to give it the thumbs up or the I, thumbs I down? I would, I would. It's it's not really some of the the, the rockier stuff is not really my cup of tea, but he does it so well and with such conviction. I'm definitely giving it the thumbs up. Uh, now, Adrian, your second... I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I didn't realise James Taylor was still around. Oh, Never James, mind still yeah. producing records. No, well, yeah, from from a rock's great hellways as we go to uh, the so-called mild man of rock. I think someone who's never... <laughs> have, they ever been, have they ever been at the same party? I don't no, know. No, James I, Taylor left early. Yeah, yeah, a man who's never knowingly bit the head off a bat on stage. <laughs> But, um, yeah, James, he's he's been touring. He still tours regularly, and he puts records out every few years. And, of course, he was one of the great singer-songwriters of the 70s. I think, you know, Sweet Baby James and Carolina in my mind, his version of, of You Got a Friend. They kind of defined that, um, that kind of sensitive, soulful singer-songwriter genre. And but he's got a, a penchant for cover versions and this new album American Standard he's gone down the the Buble Robbie Rod Stewart et al route and uh, he, he's delving back into the classic show tunes of the 40s and 50s yeah there's a track called um, As Easy As Rolling Off A Log which is from the Merry Melodies cartoon, Catnip College, one of those classic Warner Brothers cartoons of the 30s. And this is James Taylor's version of a song that was originally sung by a couple of cartoon cats. Get in a huddle, it's easy with you, as easy as rolling off a log. I really tumbled, baby, but what else could I do? It's so easy to fall in love with you. 
Mm, that's got a very jazzy kind of uh, period feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's not the kind of record you'd play before you go out on a Friday night. <laughs> for, for a Sunday morning, it's got a nice, soothing, pleasant feel. I mean, he tackles a few other standards. I have slight reservations about his... I mean, these show tunes, they're so bright and lively and vivacious. There's, he does Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat and Sorry with the Fringe on the Top. And in a way, these are songs that demand big performances and his... His slightly more laid-back style. It um, you kind of almost after a full album of it, you 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 feel you you kind of want a little bit more than that. But it, it's it's a pleasant listen. Go it's, on then, uh, hit or miss, uh, Adrian. On this occasion, I'm going to give it a miss. Now the last of this week's hits and misses, this time what's coming up on the small screen with Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television critic. Claudia, what have you been watching? I've been watch I've watched the first episode of Noughts and Crosses, which starts next Thursday on BBC One. It's been a lot of buzz about this. It's based on a series of youth novels that were hugely popular when they came out about 19 years ago by um, an author called Mallory Blackman. And they they tell the story of this sort of dystopian parallel universe where Africa has has uh, colonised Europe. So black people are the ruling classes and white people are very much the sort of downtrodden underclass. There's a huge um, apartheid system in place. Um, the the noughts are the, um, the white people and uh, the crosses are the black people. They live separately. They go to different schools, different hospitals. So that that's what this series is about. It's, it's a six-parter. Um, so it, it's dealing with uh, political corruption. Um, it, it, it deals with um, there's lots of sort of violence. There's lots of unrest as a pending coup but also against this backdrop there's a love story with the two main characters there's Sefi who is the black daughter of a politician and there's Callum who is the white son of their housekeeper so that in a nutshell is the story there's an awful lot going on and that's also the the problem that I had with the first episode there is so much going on it's just overwhelming you just you just kind of come away feeling like you've got you know a, a bit of a migraine um, well, I'm going to add to your migraine by, by, by playing you a clip things are never going to change are they you can keep a secret can't you the crosses will be exposed for what they are the norms are content to see our culture swept away every time I see you there she is too so there's a lot going on, but what's yeah. going on? Is it any good that's going on? There's a very young cast. So there are some adult players, as Helen Baxendale, for example, with a very dodgy South London accent, I have to say. <laughs> um, but it's mostly quite an inexperienced youth cast, and it, to me it felt a bit like... Do you remember those old children's film foundation movies? <laughs> it felt a little bit like that. Oh, so dear. despite the huge budget, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say it was a miss. <laughs> And um, um, what else, Claudia? So starting on Wednesday on ITV, The Trouble with Maggie Cole, which is a new comedy drama. It's sort of in the in the same sort of feel as Doc Martin, that kind of feel. And it's um it stars Dawn French, and she's the she's the lead character. She's Maggie Cole, and she's um a nosy neighbour, a curtain twitcher. She works in the local... She works in the gift shop of the local museum, but she insists on calling herself an historian. Um, and so the story is about... She gets... She does an interview for local radio to talk about the history of the town, and the interviewer gets her very drunk, and she ends up spilling all sorts of secrets about the people that live in this very small town, and then the people all start to, to turn against her. I think we have a little clip here. I know 
one family around here with a bit more going on than meets the eye. They're a very friendly couple. I haven't known them since they were kids, to be honest. She's a hairdresser. She works at the local salon. Husband works at the boatyard. Dad, for God's sake, just turn it off. Don't. Don't you dare. It's not like either of them make much, and then suddenly, brand new car. Flashy clothes. And the pair of them have started acting, well, you know, differently. I read they'd been a jackpot winner somewhere in the county. I, I don't know why they're trying to hide it, though. They're probably worried about begging letters or something like that. Maggie, what is this? Yes, yes, my husband's the headmaster there, you see. Maggie. Actually, he's retiring next year. It's never going to be the same without him. I mean, the woman who's taking over, she's... Well, don't get me wrong or anything. She's actually my best friend, as it goes, but... Oh, you know, maybe not the sharpest tool in the box, to put it mildly. <laughs> I mean, oh, she thinks she could ever take... Definitively Dawn French, that. You can you can hear it, but I couldn't work out what else was going on there. Well, that, that scene is... Dawn, um, her character, Maggie, holds a barbecue um, because she's so proud of the fact she's given this interview. So she's brought... The interview is being broadcast at her party and everybody in the town is there, so they're all hearing Maggie basically slagging them off. <laughs> That's... Um, right. Is it Vicar of Dibley part two? Does it oh, work? No, it's not. The, the, the problem, I mean, I'm all for letting a story build, but that, 40 minutes has gone by when you watch it. So it's an hour long and nothing has happened. So it, it does get good in the last 10 minutes, but I, I'd be very surprised if people don't switch off after the first ad break. OK, so switch off after the... But after the 10 minutes of excitement well, happens, are you going to go back? Is it going to be something that's going to grip you? I don't think I am, because I, I think, I've, even though I, I think I can pretty much work out what's going to happen anyway. Oh, um, no, so it's one of those. It, I'm, I'm, yeah, this, it's another miss from me. Two misses, Claudia. Two that, misses. That'll, be your new, that'll be your new nickname. <laughs> Two misses, Connell. I'll try and have a hit next week. <laughs> Well, now you know what's worth watching this week and what's worth feigning coronavirus to avoid. My thanks to Brian, Adrian and Claudia. Now, let's find out what's on everyone's mind on the other side of the Atlantic. And who better to tell us than the woman who knows, the male's own Jackie Stephen. Uh, Jackie, the presidential election kind of vibes are all starting. Um, what, what, what's happening on that front? Well, the Democratic nomination is coming up and there's a lot of excitement because... Uh, Bernie Sanders was in the lead, then he wasn't, and there was a lot of competition from other people. But now Sanders in, is in the lead again. But there are celebrities coming out for Bloomberg, who was uh, mayor of New York. And it's very exciting at the moment because last week Michael Douglas said that he's coming out for B Bloomberg and so is Judge Judy, and they're now rallying for him. And, you know, it's, it's celebrities coming out for politicians, which I don't think is a good thing. It didn't work well for Hillary Clinton in the last US election, and it didn't work well for Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Your average voter sees celebrities as overprivileged whingers who are out of touch <laughs> with reality, which most of them are. So I'm not sure that Michael Douglas is going to be a good thing. He did, of course, play an American president uh, in the movie, and I wondered whether this is him sort of laying the groundwork for 
him to run next time. And, of Ooh. course, Catherine will already be buying her clothes for when she's first lady. Absolutely. Uh, that is a, that's yeah. a really interesting... I mean, he is more from the Democrat side, isn't he? His father was a Democrat and so on. I mean, but I saw Clint Eastwood had come out for Bloomberg. I mean, is this just... That really surprised me. Is, they, is this just that everyone hates Trump in, in, in the kind of um, celebrity world? I think they're just clutching at straws at the moment because I think Trump is going to walk it. I don't think anyone is going to come close to him because he's really got middle America sewn up. With regard to Douglas, I think what's fascinating here is that he's come out for somebody who's very, very rich. Now, everyone tends to vote for the person who's going to benefit them themselves. It may be that Michael Douglas is now coming out for Bloomberg because he's going for the person who's going to most benefit him, i.e. the person who's got a lot of money and will favour his own kind. Because Kirk Douglas has now left Michael nothing in his will. So how Michael's going to muddle along on his $300 million, who knows? Oh. So he's got to hold hands with Bloomberg now. Poor Michael. Can he? I know. How can, he's going to have to just, you know, pull his pull his coat in or whatever the description well, is. Three hundred million dollars isn't even going to do Catherine's hair for a year. <laughs> um, now, listen. Talking of a lot of money, uh, what's been happening with um, Harry and Meghan? Because uh, we know they're leaving here, and uh, Brad Pitt's told us they're going over there. But is there any sign of them arriving? Uh, there is actually. They've been house hunting in Malibu. And this was dropped on the TV show by Caitlyn Jenner. And they're looking at uh, a little pad that's valued somewhere between 10 and uh, 20 million. Uh, it's currently rented out for $16,000 a night. So uh, they're obviously making some, some money somewhere. And uh, it's a nice property. It's got a wine cellar, a huge kitchen, uh, but it's in Malibu. Now, Malibu has suffered hugely with earthquakes and fires. So I don't think it's the safest place for them to go. But you may not remember, but I did tell you that Megan had a site set on Hollywood and they wouldn't be in Canada long. Lovely as she looks in those winter hats in Canada, I knew that she'd want to get her kit off and start getting into all those nice frocks again. And it looks as if Hollywood is where they're heading for. And, and Malibu's close enough, is it? I'm, my geography's very poor. Sorry, Jackie. Malibu's close enough to Hollywood, uh, but the Pacific Highway can be very, very overcrowded. And when Malibu was cut off after the fires, uh, nobody could go anywhere. They couldn't even go to their houses. So I don't think it's the most practical place. I think probably the Hollywood Hills might be better for them. The thing that bothers me at the moment about them is that for a couple who wanted to live a private life, and the house itself is very private, they're not not really going about being private in a very private way. They couldn't be more conspicuous if they were a lighthouse. <laughs> yes, getting, Kate, getting Caitlyn Jenner to announce where you're going to live is hardly keeping it quiet, exactly. is it? And these pompous statements they're coming out with that obviously aren't written by a brick. They're very much in American style. And I just think if you want a private life, sit down, shut up and close the shutters on your windows. Jackie, we, we don't want them to have a private life, do we? We want to keep well, gossiping about them. Well, they don't want to have them. a private life. Well, they don't want to have a private life either. Otherwise, it would be very easy for them to do so. But it's very clear they want the celebrity lifestyle and all the trappings and trimmings that come with it. Always good to speak to you, Jackie. Have a good you week. Too. And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify and leave us a review. And if you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your MailPlus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. Oh,